If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16. Again, we thank you so much for this great opportunity we have to gather together as Christians, as those who have placed their trust in you. And Father, we know that it is right and proper for us to gather together and to bow before you. That Father, we may show you reverence and respect, that we may adore you, that we may reveal our gratefulness, that we may reflect upon those things that you are as well as what you've done. And Father, also as we do so, It is an act of worship that we bow together, not only in prayer, but then to open your word and to read your word and to think about your word, to discuss your word, that, Father, we may have our minds changed by what your word says, that we may be challenged by what your word says, that, Father, that we may have our lives shaped by what your word says. And we ask that you grant us understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to give to us a strong hunger and desire to have our souls fed from your word. And so we thank you, Lord, again for this great opportunity that we have. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Luke 16, Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 22, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. We've discussed this before in detail. You know that I have mentioned many times that in some Bibles, whether it's a study Bible or what have you, you may have a title above some part of chapter 16 that will indicate that the story of Abraham and um, Lazarus and the rich man is a parable. I disagree with that. I don't think this is a parable. I think it's a true story. I think it has been being given by the Lord for many different reasons. We will not go again into great detail about uh, uh, all that is going on here. I will quickly say uh, that I do believe that those who were Old Testament believers when they died, uh, like non-believers, they all went to Sheol, but Sheol had more than one compartment, as we have seen, and that what we have here is a picture of that reality. One man was a non-believer. He was in Hades and he was in torment. The other man was a believer and he was in Abraham's bosom or uh, paradise. And uh, that depicts the reality of this. There's been a lot of discussion in Christian literature about this story and the, the, the many different reasons why Jesus would have given this story. And whether one views it as being a parable or not, Uh, One author did point out, and he said this, If Jesus did not want people to think that they would remain conscious after death, why would he choose to tell a story that hinges on that notion? Now, I don't think Jesus was trying to convince them of the reality of life after death because the audience he spoke to already believed that. They already believed and accepted the idea that when someone dies, they immediately go to one place or the other. And that they were conscious uh, where they were. There was no idea that they were annihilated. There was no idea that they were somehow asleep. Uh, That type of thing. They understood that. And so he was just revealing to them the reality of what is. And then, of course, 
Uh, I think the main idea is for them to understand that though you were Jewish, you could still die and go to Hades because that would have been something that was shocking to them because they thought they were safe because of the Jewish heritage. And he makes it clear that when these two Jewish men died, they went to other places. And so their heads would have definitely been spinning uh, at that moment. So Jesus' story then is basically uh, not just about the rich and the poor, uh, about the love of money and religious hypocrisy on the part of the Pharisees. Uh, He does discuss in detail as to what's going on in this place uh, when these two men die. The thing is also is that the experiences of the rich man and the experiences of Lazarus occurred immediately after their death. That's the natural understanding of the passage. So we have mentioned many, many months ago when I began all of this, when we talk about the intermediate state, and when, we, when I say the intermediate state, that's not purgatory. There's no such thing as purgatory. The idea is, is that there's a, a state where if you die, if you are a believer, you will be in heaven, but you do not yet have your glorified body. That's coming. So we're waiting. So this is the intermediate state in between death and that. And for the non-believer, he dies, he goes to hell, he suffers. Uh, he's raised, there's judgment, and then his punishment is worse than what he's going to experience now. For the believer, he is uh, experiencing bliss and comfort. Uh, it's a wonderful place to be. He's going to be with the Lord. And then at the resurrection, uh, the Bible talks about us getting our glorified bodies, and we kind of go on from there. So again, there is no delay, there's no wait, there's, there's, there's what, whatever takes place is going to happen immediately. So when we think about our loved ones, and we make those statements that, that people make when someone dies, well, they're in a better place. For the believer, we know that that person's a believer, that is true. When we say they're no longer suffering, it's not because they're not suffering because they cease to exist. They do exist. It is true if they're believers, they are no longer suffering. What great comfort that is to us. That what we believe is not just some superstitious fairy tale to help us to deal with the tragedy of death. It is the reality of what is that's being revealed to us by God so that we then as believers will and can receive very real comfort until the culmination of all things when the Lord returns. There is no other comfort because we know that all men face death. It is something that we are to hate It is a great tragedy. Uh, In one sense, we would say it is not the way that things are supposed to be, and it is temporary, and one day it's going to be destroyed. Let me read you the words of John Gill, who talks about uh, this story in this way. He says this, The state of both of these men is summed up in a few words, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Even now, immediately after the death of both, that this respects the intermediate state between the death of of the body and the resurrection of it, is clear from what the wicked man petitioned. It shows that the state of men before the resurrection and as taking place immediately upon death. And of course, he is the rich man is suffering. Remember his request. Uh, if you keep reading, is that, that Abraham allowed Lazarus to just dip his finger in water to put one drop on his tongue because his suffering is so great that, that would bring him immense relief even though we know that would just be just for the briefest of moments. That is what he's longing for. Just, just that. It's almost as if he's saying that he could, he could handle it a little longer if he, if he knew he could look forward to that and have that done. And so what happens is, uh, um, when you think about that, you don't have to turn to it, but in Luke 23, verse 43, when Jesus is on the cross, he turns to one of the thieves and he says to him, truly I say to you, today... 
you will be with me in paradise. Again, the emphasis here is on the word today. One of these men, there's two men that are being crucified with Christ. One has rejected him. One has basically embraced him as the Messiah. He believes in him as being the Savior. Uh, The difficulty that people have had in looking at this is trying to figure out um, where, I guess you would say, the punctuation should go. In other words, the debate is, did Jesus say, I say to you today, comma, you'll be with me in paradise, or did Jesus say, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise? What was he saying? Most believe, and I believe they're correct, that he was telling him that at that moment, that that day, he'll be with him again in paradise. I believe that's the natural reading of the text. Leon Morris says this about this passage. He says, not only would he have a place, this thief, in the kingdom, whenever that would be established, but that very day he would enter paradise. The word paradise is the Septuagint translation of the word garden in Genesis 2 and in chapter 13. Remember uh, when I mentioned the Septuagint, what that is, uh, 70 Hebrew scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. They did that because a majority of of the Hebrew people were not as fluent in Hebrew or didn't even speak Hebrew, and they wanted to make sure their people had access to the Scripture. And so uh, there are times that we talk about the Septuagint, and even though the Bible, the Old Testament in Hebrew, there's a Greek translation, which is what the Septuagint is. And sometimes in books you read, there'll be Roman numerals LXX, and they'll say LXX, and then there's a quote. Well, that's, they're telling you that's from the Septuagint. Because sometimes it reads a little different from the Hebrew, and so they want you to know that uh, when you're reading it. So, though, again, paradise is, the tra- is a translation of the word garden in Genesis 2 and Genesis 13. And the word paradise then, eventually in Jewish theology, uh, came to refer to the residence of the righteous dead, or it was used of heaven. Now, when I say Jewish, Jewish theology, that doesn't always mean Jewish theology is wrong. Jewish theology was right on many things. Jesus didn't have to correct all of it. He did correct a great deal of it. Uh, But this word remained intact. Jesus even used it uh, and would have used it in this way. So there is a future paradise that the Bible identifies with the Garden of Eden. And it leads to our understanding that it exists or it existed in between the creation and the final age in a hidden form. They say in a hidden form because we're not really sure. Does it already exist now? Is it, I mean, what does it exactly look like? So we just use that phrasing, um, that there's mystery to it that we don't understand, but we know that it exists. And again, nothing takes away from this idea that when one dies, there is going to be an immediate conscious existence and awareness of where you are. Not good for the non-believer, very good for the believer. And that's why we do have to be very careful as Christians. When you go to a funeral, and we go to a lot of them, especially the older we get, and if you go to the funeral of an individual that you are fairly certain was not a believer, and most of the time we can tell that you can't be dogmatic about it, but if that person just really didn't have much interest in spiritual things, in church, the Bible, those things, there's a pretty good chance that person wasn't a Christian. Do not say, well, we know they're in a better place, because you don't know that. There's a lot of things you can say. Don't say that. Because there will be some, and you might be surprised as to how many, but there will be some who, knowing you are a Christian, will go ahead and freely interpret what you're saying 
as you agreeing with them that that individual is in a better place, which then leads them then to continue to believe that it doesn't matter how you live and it doesn't matter what you believe. And you are then helping to propitiate false teaching. That's not far-fetched. You should be amazed at some people in your life, what they will bank on what you say. Because when it, if people are scared about death, they don't like to think about it, especially if they're not really religious. There's something that, you know, no one really is looking forward to it, but they're terrified of it, and they are looking for something to hold on to, something to grasp, just to help to alleviate the fears for now. They're not necessarily looking for deliverance. They're, they're not looking to come to Christ necessarily, but they're looking for something Maybe even in a kind of a superstitious way. And if you kind of drop the hint, especially if they think that you're serious. And for most of them, most people, if you go to church most every week, they think you're serious. It doesn't really mean that, but to them it does. And so they're hoping that if you say something or you kind of nod in agreement, they go, well, we know he's in a better place. You go, yeah, they are. They're like, whoo. And so we have to be careful. I'm not saying you go there looking for an argument. But I don't think it's sinful. And I don't think it's rude for us to let them see our great hesitation. Because we're not dealing with matters of superstition or myth. And we're definitely not dealing with a matter of opinion. The world will say it's opinion. Well, that's your opinion, have my opinion. Well, we don't say to each other, like, if all of a sudden, it would be tragic if all of a sudden if Jill died. I'm not cursing her. We don't, we're not superstitious. But if Jill died, I would not say to Robert, well, it's my opinion that she's you know, probably in heaven. That's not really comforting to Robert. What do you mean? Because the first thing he's going to think is, well, what do you mean it's your opinion? He's not looking for opinions at that point. Even though he believes what the Bible says, he is looking for reinforcement that I also, his brother in Christ, firmly believe what the Bible says, and yes, we know where she's at because we know that she believes in the work of Christ. So even though the world says it's a matter of opinion, and we can let the world say that, and we can say, well, let's sit down and discuss it to see whose, we don't, don't say it this way, but we can see whose opinion is worth water and whose isn't. Uh, but the idea is, is we, we can discuss it. We can point to the authority and, and the clarity of Scripture. So we have many opportunities in fact, you can even say to, say to an individual who says, well, I was in a better place, say, well, I mean, I would love to talk about it more in detail, probably not here, but I'd love to talk about it more in detail later because I have my doubts or I, I was kind of hoping, but I don't know. Just, there's, that's not bad. You don't have to say, well, no, he's burning in hell right now as we speak. That's not, that's not how you say that. But there's nothing wrong. It's not deceitful for you to let them know. Because in one sense, we really aren't always sure. Because we do know that it is possible that there are some individuals who've come to Christ at the very last moment. Now, I'm not going to go there to try to get the individual to hinge all their hope on that. Because that's what happens. People then say, oh, well, then I'll wait till then. That's why, even though I'm not really in the bumper sticker theology, there is a bumper sticker I do like. And that is, very simply... Those who intend to die at 11 often go at 1030. And so there's, you know, you've just missed that last moment opportunity. So uh, I'm sure you can find that bumper sticker somewhere. I think it's very provocative. Um, uh, some of you would put it on a shirt. But anyway, uh, just be ready for conversations and maybe for some people to be just a wee bit upset with you uh, when you do that.
But the idea, again, is that uh, paradise is a word that's used for this. In fact, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We see the word paradise used again, just so you know that, that uh, throughout the scripture, um, that this word paradise, uh, again, which is the word garden, which came to refer to where the righteous dead reside, and then, and then eventually not only to paradise, but then to, he- I mean, to uh, Abraham's bosom, but then to heaven uh, itself. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise. And heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So when, when Paul makes this statement, in the body I don't know, out of the body I don't know, he's basically telling us, I don't know if he was, he says, I don't know if I was, he's talking about himself, I don't know if I was physically taken there, or basically if I was kind of an out-of-body experience, had a vision, he doesn't really know, but he states, he was caught to the third heaven, heaven, and then later referring to the exact same thing, says I was caught up to paradise, it's the same place. And so then he talks about seeing it and that he says things that are not lawful for a man to utter. Which is just an interesting phrase to me. He says it's not lawful for a man to utter. Now I know there's a lot of ways to look at that. Well, basically two. But um, uh, the idea is that when it came to um, uh, Jewish theology, you just didn't just speak flippantly about heaven where God was because that would be considered blasphemy. You didn't just kind of spout off, I had a dream and now I know what heaven's like. Uh, and maybe it refers to something bigger than that. Because I think about those individuals who've written the books and made the movies, you know, about their time in heaven, which I, it's all a bunch of bunk. I don't think they were there uh, at all. But, and they tell you what's going on. One of the books, the guy talks about the hymns they're singing or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but it says here that it's not lawful for you to utter what's going on there. So I don't think you were there. And even one of the books, the guy says, I think he was a pastor. He, I think it's 90 minutes in heaven. But read carefully. It's 90 minutes really outside of heaven. He never gets in. Which, to me, if I was him, I'd be very disturbed by that. Because he never gets in. He's always, he's outside. Uh, that's just not a good place to be. Read Revelation. It tells you who's outside. But anyway, um, it's not a good experience. But from Revelation, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I would give to eat from the tree of life, which, in the, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And it's referring to heaven. Luke 23, it represents the state of bliss, which Jesus promises to the criminal directly after death. The use of paradise today presents no problem. It refers to, again, uh, for them, the day of crucifixion as the day of entry into paradise. In Acts 7, we have a man who's being killed because he's a Christian. And in verse 55, it says, Be he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And saw the glory of God. This is Stephen. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then later it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, or called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So at the end of Stephen's sermon, before the Sanhedrin, an angry mob took him outside the city to stone him and to kill him. They were accusing him of blasphemy. He becomes so absorbed in this vision that he started to describe, really, I think, very excitedly what he was seeing. And what he said took his enemies back to the conversation that the religious leaders had with another prisoner. 
Remember that during the trials of Jesus, Jesus was asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answered and said, I am. And you will see what? The Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Being at the right hand of God was a statement of deity. In fact, when he says that, one of the Jewish leaders considered that the epitome of of blasphemy and accused him of that. (coughs) Stephen not only sees that, he says also the same thing. That he sees him at the Son of Man, uses that phrase. In fact, it's the only time in the New Testament that anyone other than Jesus uses that phrase, Son of Man. That he sees him standing up uh, next to God. At that point, when Stephen's about to die, and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he did not say, Lord, receive my spirit, and I'll see you in a few thousand years. Now, I don't think he would say that anyway, but I do think that there was an expectation when he made that statement, he was fully expecting to be with the Lord the moment he died. He said, Lord, receive my spirit. He did not say, receive my body. You don't have a decaying body in heaven. Stephen knew who waited for him because he, his eyes saw Jesus. So the similarity to the dying words of Jesus, I believe, is just unmistakable. When Jesus said uh, at his death, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, it says he breathed his last and fell asleep. The word sleep is a euphemism for death. It is used in the Bible only for believers. It's never used for non-believers. Sleep does not mean the cessation of existence. It does not mean the cessation of awareness. Because we learn later on in Paul's writings that he says to be absent from the body is what? Be present with the Lord. Where is that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Uh, I'm going to read all the way through verse 8. So you can go there if you want to. Uh, but the reference should be there in your notes. It reads this way. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made with hands eternal in the heavens it's important again the way that paul expresses this as he writes to believers he says we know he doesn't say it's my opinion we know this for in this uh, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. That's such a great phrase. We want our mortality to be swallowed up, not by death. We want our mortality as believers to be swallowed up by life. That's what it is. Even though we grieve when those we love die, for those who are believers, we know that their mortality has been swallowed up by life. They've gone from life to life. What a great thing that is. And even in the midst of our tears and sadness, this is what prevents us from despairing. This is what prevents us from becoming deeply depressed. We may be saddened for months, which, by the way, I think would be normal. Secular psychologist says two weeks and you need drugs. I'm convinced that the longer that, for example, if you're married, the longer you're married and the better your marriage, I think the longer your grief. And if, and if we find that you are grieving in six months, I don't think there's something, something wrong with you, and I don't think you lack faith. Now, there may be some who during that time, that may begin to have a difficulty, but it's quickly fixed, not the sadness, not the depression, but the despairing is quickly fixed by the Scripture. But it would be normal and right, I think. Imagine, what do we think if somebody has a spouse they love dearly and that person died, and two weeks later, they're fully recovered? 
Well, you know, life goes on. Well, yes, it does. But that is, that we would, in fact, we would probably say, well, we're kind of worried. Now we're worried about them. It's like they're in denial. And so don't, we follow the world on everything. And we just have to stop doing that. We have to think for ourselves as Christians. In fact, I would say this. Whatever the world says, immediately disbelieve it. Amen. And then once we prove it right, then it's okay. You can believe it. It's almost like if the news, I'm not just saying that because of all the problem with the news, but if the news or whoever said the sky is blue, I'm checking. Good, I'm just not sure. All right, so the idea then is that when it comes to death, we can have a very healthy, full understanding of it. And we understand both the grief and the reality of mortality being swallowed up by life. So anyway, that's just a, a great phrase uh, and one that I think we should throw around because the non-believer has no idea what it means. And man, will that give you an opportunity to explain the gospel. Verse 5, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident. Again, that's just really cool. It's because what we know so we are always confident. Why? Knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So he, this is just this the confidence that Paul writes with. These are not the words of a man who's deluded. You can read all that he writes to see clearly that Paul is not a deluded individual. He is a brilliant individual. Incredible faith in God. But remember that faith is not just, it's not a situation where someone has faith and others don't. You know, we talk about believers. No, our faith grows as we feed it the word of God. So if you long for, you want to have the confidence, and you want to say you know what Paul knows, you're going to get that by reading scripture. And feeding your soul the Bible every day. Thinking about what the Bible says. Dwelling on it. John MacArthur makes this comment about the phrase, absent from the body and at home with the Lord. He says, when a believer leaves this world, he goes immediately to be in the presence of Christ. There is no soul sleep or intermediate waiting place. Nor does the Bible teach that there is any place called purgatory. Notice the apostle's desire was to depart and be with Christ. When we are absent from the body, which sleeps, the body sleeps until resurrection, our spirits are present with the Lord. Paul also told the Thessalonians that Christ died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Paul's point is that whether we are physically awake or alive, or physically asleep, dead, as believers, we are with Christ. We are in his presence in a spiritual sense now and in a literal sense when our bodies are dead. You can rejoice in the fact that there is no time in your life as a believer when you will ever be out of the conscious presence of Jesus Christ. I just think that's really cool. And it's true and it's so fantastic. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen died knowing that the one standing and waiting for him in heaven would receive his spirit. How could Stephen look to Jesus in the hour of his death and then expect to be separated from him for some vast period of time? Stephen's body, not his soul or not his spirit, his body sleeps in death. 
Turn, if you would, to Philippians 1, just for a moment. Philippians chapter 1, look at verses 21 and following. Again, Paul writes, and, and uh, the first verse I'm going to read is very, very familiar to us. Again, he says, for to me to live is Christ, verse 21, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul was a prisoner in Rome. He was chained to a Roman soldier, and he was having this debate. But the debate was centered around which would be more honoring to the Lord, to depart and be with Christ or to remain in the body. To remain in the body would mean he would continue to minister to the Philippian church and to the other churches as well. Paul is concerned with that he might be facing death, So he was contemplating God's will regarding his future. And he was confident he was going to be delivered, either by physical release or martyrdom. He saw that as deliverance. Martyrdom and departing to be with Christ was his personal desire. But the choice wasn't his. So Paul, I think, was thinking of of more than just simply a release from troubles of this earthly life. He was anticipating being immediately with Christ. The gain for him must be related to his departure and being with Christ. Only death can give us the gift of eternity. Death escorts us into the presence of God. Death might temporarily take our friends from us, but only to introduce us to the land in which there are no goodbyes. So when it comes to death, philosophers for a long time have argued whether that, that that death is actually just neutral. Again, that's the feeling of the world. They, they want to make death neutral. You know why? So that you can somehow not be afraid of it. Remember that, a great deal of, even though I, you know, I talk bad a lot about psychology, I don't hate all of it, but the main promise with psychology, the main problem with philosophy, is most of that, the secular or the worldly things, is man trying to figure out and come up with his theories of life and meaning and how we should live and morals and ethics apart from God. It's the, 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 the foundational stance is God doesn't exist or God doesn't matter. It's mythical. Now, let's we figure out what's going on. That's, what, that's, that's why those things are dangerous, because they, they, they presume that. And so then as people get into that, that's why those things can often cause people to drift. I'm not against people reading or even studying philosophy and psychology. That's not necessarily bad. But as a Christian, we must always do it thinking. God wants us to be thinking people. And we are thinking about it through the paradigm of what the Word of God has to say. That's what has given rise, which back in the 70s, I believe, uh, what gave rise to what we call the biblical counseling movement. What, this, what one, man, one man primarily saw, he wasn't the only one who saw, but he was the only one who actually began to write and do things actively, Jay Adams, which was, was he understood what psychology was doing and the numbers of people that were going to secular psychologists and they were getting this advice, which it wasn't always immoral, it wasn't always unethical, but it was always anti-Christian. Remember that if we go to a non-believing, let's say you go to a non-believing counselor of any kind, and he's telling you what you should and shouldn't do, and he's doing so from the premise that God doesn't exist or matter, even what he says, even if what he says is actually true and even good, still doesn't mean it's not anti-Christian. Because what he is saying, or maybe we could say this, what he is inferring is, I don't need God to come up with these moral things. We don't need God to understand ethics here. And then we accept it. 
So I get it. I said we should disbelieve what they say. If it bears this about in Scripture, then fine. But that's the paradigm that we are to have. So there's no brainwashing here. You know, because people want to accuse Christians of being brainwashed, that we don't think for ourselves. I think they're the ones that may be on, on that thing. We are to approach this as thinking. So if you see one or you know someone sees it, that's, that's, that's how we approach this. So philosophy for a long time has tried to argue that death was neutral, that it wasn't evil, that in the end we're just annihilated, or there's the migration of the soul from one place to another. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is viewed as the last enemy. That would be evil. It's going to be destroyed. But also he understood that it's a doorway right now. It is what we go through to pursue, to be with Christ undistracted. And the Palestinian Jews that Paul was writing to emphasized the future resurrection of the bodies of the righteous. They believed that the souls of the righteous that would be with God. And Paul agrees with that. And so again, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me make one point and then I'll just have to finish. When he says to die is gain, again, does not mean that a Christian should desire death because he hates life. Paul did not hate life. Paul had been tortured. Paul was imprisoned. But, his, but the value he put on his life, his approach to life was not determined by his circumstances. His life was filled with joy, even though his circumstances were very difficult. He viewed life as sweet fellowship with Christ. Now, I don't know if they still do this now, but I know that, I guess you would say in the olden days, one of the love stories that people would like to read about, one of the great things about enduring love is that Two people who found each other and loved each other, that regardless of the circumstances, as long as they were together, it was good. If they were rich and they loved each other, it was good. That was always viewed as being the easy part. It's the other part, being poor. But it was in our vows, you know, for richer or for poorer, for richer or for flat broke. Uh, you know, all right, for richer or when we have to miss meals. But the idea is, is that if we are together, we will still be the happier. We'd rather be together, be poor and together, than to be rich and be separate. Not everybody believes that, but anyway, that, so that's what's enduring about love. And so the, the relationship with that person is viewed as, that, as being so powerful and, and terrific, which again is why God does emphasize the relationships that we have with each other, not just with our spouses, but with each other, and of course, obviously with Christ. So every aspect of Paul's life while he was alive, was viewed through this paradigm or the lens of the ongoing relationship that he had with Jesus Christ and the joy of serving Christ. So he didn't view life as tough and death as just an escape or relief, though it would bring that. Sometimes when life is difficult or when a person suffers from chronic, painful disease, they long for relief. And as we know, that person may be tempted they even want to take their own life. Sometimes even those who are godly can get into a state of depression. And they would rather die than live. And we know that's true because when you read the scripture, that happened to Moses, that happened to Elijah, that happened to Jeremiah, that happened to Jonah, where they all hit a low point in their life where they asked God to take their lives. Suicide is never God's will for anyone. 
It does not exalt Christ. Paul wants to make sure that his death, if that happens, exalts Christ. Suicide would always be a selfish act, always done in disregard of those who are left behind to grieve. It, in a sense, usurps the sovereignty of God, who has a fruitful purpose for every aspect of a believer's life. So Christians should love life and view it, what? As an opportunity to serve the Lord thankfully. Which is then why even a believer who is bedridden, if we believe the Bible, that person can certainly every day serve Christ and his body. We should never even for a moment allow ourselves to think to diminish the idea that, well, all they can do is lay there and pray. Well, you know what? I'll go visit them and tell them, you don't want to be prayed for, but I do. So I'll have them pray for me. You can just be on the outside. We sometimes think that way. Uh, if, if you're, you know, like, obviously you're not bedridden, or you wouldn't be here, but, you know, if you get to a place where you're bedridden, don't think that your life now has no purpose because you can't get up and go anywhere. It does have purpose, absolutely. But we often so downplay prayer that we don't see that as a viable option for anything. And it may be even an indication that we didn't do a whole lot of praying before. It could be an indication of lack of faith. We don't really think God's going to do anything. I mean, it just there's all kinds of problems with that. One of the great things about praying is you do see the world very differently. And I believe that when you spend time praying, God will open your eyes. And it's not that you begin to see things that aren't there, but you begin to see things with understanding, and you see God working. It's just really cool. A friend of yours has a kid that's really troubled, and you begin to pray for that situation faithfully. And every time you hear of something good happening, you will experience greater joy. You will. Because you're going to think this. That's so cool. God's answering prayer. Now, you may share that with, a, with a, another believer who doesn't pray as much, and they're kind of like, oh, yeah, that's cool. They know they have to, I mean, what are they going to say? You know, well, I don't really don't think God's doing that. And they're not going to say that. But they're not going to experience the joy that is ours for seeing that. It's just a great way to live life. I don't know about you, but I'm really into the whole thing about having joy. That's a great thing. And that will enhance our joy and increase our joy. So we need to make sure that we do that. And so again, Christians should be thankful and love life regardless of their circumstance. And see that and view it as an opportunity to serve the Lord thankfully. Because it does serve God and it serves His church. I don't think it's wrong to seek to extend our lives through proper medical procedures when we face life-threatening situations. I think it's right for us to do that. Modern medicine, we've extended life in incredible ways, and it is a marvel, to say the least. It is difficult because of all the things we're able to do. Now that raises other questions. Should we do this? Should we do that? And sometimes people really, really struggle. You know, if you have a, an older parent and they go into the hospital, you know, there's, they're always going to ask you, resuscitation, what do we do? Should we do it? Should we not? And there are those who begin to struggle. Well, if, if I don't have the doctors resuscitate, is that a sin? Am I killing them? No, you're not killing them. John MacArthur made this statement once. He does sometimes say some things that are, cause all, all kinds of uh, uproar, uh, which is good. And uh, so he said this. He says, as a general rule, if a medical procedure 
will not restore a person to life, but only prolongs the process of dying, then it probably should not be used. I think it makes sense. And so, and we have freedom because we understand life and death and purpose. And so that doesn't mean you go around place and start pulling the plug. It doesn't mean that either. We have to think through all these situations. And they can be, and of course we know that on one hand, when you're outside of the family, it's, in a sense it's easier to think about it. But when it's your family, it can be very, very difficult. And so it's hard. And we need to be understanding and not, not you know, crass when it comes to those things. But, you know, for the non-believer, they, at times, don't care what it takes as long as the person just keeps breathing. Just keep them breathing. Because they believe that this is all there is. I would never mock them for that, even though they're completely wrong. I feel bad for them. And the relief is only found in the gospel. And we pray that God help us to find ways. And sometimes people can be very, very sensitive at those times and they don't want to talk about it and you bring that up they might get mad at you but it's worth the risk it's worth it as Christians our motive for wanting to extend life should be so that we can further serve the Lord not just so we can enjoy ourselves God wants us to love life to the fullest to serve him joyfully as long as we have life so Paul here was not suicidal he was not morbid but he did understand that he was expendable And he is saying here that if God were to call him to heaven, that suited him just fine. Because he knew he would be with the Lord. And so no matter how long you have been a believer, we do need from time to time to think about death. It's coming. And we need to make sure that we're ready. We would like to think that we're all going to grow old. For me, growing old now keeps being pushed further back. But we all like to think that we're going to grow old and have time. I don't know what we mean by that when we say we have time. We mean a lot of things. But it's not just something that you prepare for when you're old. Because you might not make it. You might not make it that long. So many things can happen. Life can happen, can change in just an instant. Totally unexpected. So we need to be ready now. And we don't say that to scare people. I'm not going to go into all these stories about people who, you know, died suddenly. And, you know, where are you? And have some dramatic music playing and the lights get dim. I'm not trying to, I'm not going to play with your emotions. But it's a reality of our existence. And death comes to all men until the Lord returns. Period. And death comes to all men at various points in life. Some here have already faced death. And they know they've been given a reprieve. They've overcome either an illness, maybe a tragic accident, or what have you. There's those of us here who know individuals that that didn't happen. And we also know individuals who died young, and those who died very young and unexpected. And so the reality is, is that there really is only one way to heaven. We can't change that. But it's the best way there is, because it is a way that is open to who? All men regardless of age, regardless of income, regardless of race, regardless of all things. It's a free gift that he's given. And what we need to do is to believe what he says. That yes, I have and am sinned 
horribly against God in many ways. And that I am, I was born separated, and I am separated from God. And I will never be able to do enough works to earn my way to heaven. Period. Even if I live to be 120, I would never be able to do enough if my entire life was spent only for living for others. Even in that, it would even be self-glorifying because I would be rejecting the way that God has offered, which is through belief in His Son, Christ. It's both easy and hard at the same time. For those of us who are believers, we think it's easy. For the non-believer, they struggle. There's so much they don't want to give up. They have, normally, they have a wrong view of God in many different ways. So I would challenge you to believe in Christ. I invite you to put your faith and trust in Him. God is a kind and good God, but he's also the judge. And the day that we have to stand before him where he is your judge, it's too late. I want my sins to be judged actually 2,000 years ago. And that is why I believe in what Christ has done. If you have any doubts on that, if you have any questions, I'm one of those that's in favor of people coming to Christ slowly. I'm not against a dramatic conversion to Christ. I think it's great. But most of us have heard the gospel a lot. And I'm not really interested in fake conversions. Uh, Whether you have tears or not really doesn't mean much, because I don't know what it means. But I do know what it means if someone truly believes. That's what I want to see. So I, I believe we can come to Christ with our eyes wide open, because he doesn't ask us to believe blindly. And so whether you want to talk to me, Tim, or pretty much anybody here who's a member, you should be able to talk to about the gospel. Ask questions. We'll, we will give you the answers from Scripture. If we don't know the answers, we will look them up. We will not try to twist your arm. We want you to understand. But don't delay. Don't pretend that you want to know because you want to do your own thing for a while. That's a dangerous game. It really is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, that I know that I'm going to be with you one day, no matter when my life is taken. And Father, my confidence is not because I have been good, because I haven't. And my confidence is not because I'm a pastor, because that never got anybody into heaven. My confidence is not because somehow uh, I've tried to do a certain amount of good things, or because I've sinned less than others. It's because of what Christ has done. And all of my hope is in that basket. I believe with all of my heart, mind, and soul the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, Father, you have said that if I believe that, you will save me. And I thank you, Father, for saving me. And I thank you, Lord, for each person here today that you have saved. But I also know, Lord, there are some here who are not yet saved. I do not know who they are. I may know who some are, but you know the heart of all men and women. And so I ask that in your kindness and grace, that you will open their eyes and allow them to see, have a sense of the truth of your word and life and death and judgment. And I pray that you would stir their hearts, that they would seek you. Whether they seek you immediately for salvation or they seek you through the course of many questions, 
I pray that you would draw them to yourself in your grace. And Father, over each one who comes, whether it's today, tomorrow, or next month, we will rejoice with the angels in heaven. And so, Father, we thank you for the sure place that we have reserved for us in heaven, made available by Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.